We are starting a new series today called I Believe in Miracles, and I'm excited about this series. The reason we're doing it is because my introduction to faith in Jesus in the first place was through miracles. Some people are raised in a Christian home. Some people kind of have an intellectual path to faith. I had a path to faith through uh, you know, being introduced to Jesus by somebody witnessing to me personally, but then the coming to faith came through the miraculous intervention of God. And so for me, believing in God is tied to seeing the miracles of God. And I want us to look at some of the miracles in the Bible and be inspired by those things and, and grab hold of some truths through that. So I want to start off by looking at two pathways to God that people look for. This is brought out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the difference between the Jewish people and what they're looking for from God, and the Greeks and what they're looking for from God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. We see here that the Jewish people are looking for miraculous signs from God. That's what they want. Are you a true prophet? Show me a sign so that I can believe in you. The Greeks weren't looking for miraculous signs. They were looking for wisdom. You know, the ancient Greek culture, a hotbed of philosophy, of new ideas, and they were looking for wisdom. But what did Paul say their message was? You know, Jews look for signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So Christ crucified, does Christ crucified uh, show the power of God? That the Son of God would come to this earth, the Messiah, the one who is going to deliver the nation of Israel, comes to this earth, the Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he is falsely accused and tried and crucified and killed. Is that a sign of the power of God that the Messiah would be crucified? That's a stumbling block to the Jews. They want a mighty warrior like King David to come and conquer the enemies. They don't want somebody who's going to be killed. To them, that didn't show the power and the might and the glory of God. So it wasn't a good sign for the Jews. And then to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, it was like, this is a strange idea. The death of the Son of God paying for my sins. It was just, it was difficult for them to understand the wisdom of this age and the miraculous signs that people were looking for wasn't the main message. The main message was Christ crucified. And I tell you what, it's pretty difficult to go off the rails, you know, go off the religious rails with Christ crucified because the greatest commandment, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all you got. And the greatest commandment is a response to the greatest truth, which is that God loves you, has paid the price to redeem you, that God has peace for you, that God has a people for you to belong to, and God has a purpose for your life set aside just for you. This is the great truth that Jesus came to this earth 
to sacrifice for you because God loves you that much. And the response to Christ crucified is the greatest commandment to love God back. We can't love God first. He first loved us, but we can love God back. So when we understand Christ crucified, when we get that deep in our spirit, then we understand the love that God has for us, the love that God has for all other people. And because he first loved us, we can love God back and we can love other people. So we can grab hold of the greatest commandment and the second one to love your neighbor because we understand Christ crucified. When we get that deep in our spirit, then when we go into the realms of wisdom and when we go into the realms of signs and wonders, the miraculous, I believe when we have Christ crucified deep in our hearts, then we're not going to go off the rails on signs and wonders and wisdom or intellectual understanding. Because, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but people can go off the rails in religion in those ways. You can get, you know, where people are getting kind of funny trying to dig into the deeper supernatural things. And for sure, people can get completely off with regards to theology and intellectualizing the faith to where, you know, they just want to fight with people and they're all prideful and all, you know, you can get into a mess with the intellectual, the wisdom side, you can get into a mess with the supernatural side if you aren't fully invested in the deep perspective that comes from knowing Christ crucified for you and Christ crucified for them. When you grab hold of that, then I believe you can go into the wisdom of God and the power of God effectively. And we see that in 1 Corinthians as well. So I just want to make sure that I communicate that Paul isn't just saying, you know, hey, the Jews demand signs. The Greeks look for wisdom. We don't want either of those. We want Christ crucified. He's also good with both the supernatural power of God and with wisdom. Wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7. So we're all on the same page. Paul says here, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So there is wisdom, not the wisdom that goes off the rails, but there is a true wisdom of God that is aligned with understanding Christ crucified. And then the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's not just the perspective of the cross, but that there's power there as well. So we want to embrace wisdom and we want to embrace the power of God for the supernatural, but we must look at these things with the foundation of Christ crucified. There's my introduction to, I believe in miracles. I believe in miracles. I have seen the miraculous hand of God. I am here speaking with you today because of the miraculous hand of God, but we must first put ourselves in the perspective of understanding 
what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And then we can dig into these deeper things. Today, we're going to try to see the power of God. I want you to believe God for a miracle in your life, a miracle, the power of God in your life to make lasting change. We're going to do this by looking at uh, biblical examples throughout this series, and then weaving in some personal testimonies and things like that from time to time. So today we are going to begin by looking at the story in Acts chapter 3 of the crippled beggar, of the lame beggar. So let's go to Acts chapter 3, and I will read the story. Now let me set the stage first. So this is Acts chapter 3, the book of Acts. So in the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the Gospels, which are the life and teachings of Christ. And then the next book in the New Testament is the book of Acts, which picks it up basically from the time of the resurrection of Christ into the ascension and the birth of the church in those first years after Jesus rose from the grave. And here we're in chapter three. So it's very early on. We're probably two, three, four months after the crucifixion. We're maybe several weeks after the day of Pentecost when that great miracle happened. Now we have this, Acts chapter three. So this is very early on in the birth of the New Testament church. And so this is a very significant miracle, a very important moment in time. So let's read Acts chapter three, verses one through 10 and see the story. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So this is an amazing miracle. And the miracle is talked about now over the rest of chapter 3 into chapter 4, and you know there's quite a response to this. But let's just look at the miracle here in the first place. So... An incredible miracle happens. A man, lame, who is over 40 years old. We find out later here in Acts that the man is over 40 years old. This is an amazing miracle. He's someone who is well known. You know, he's placed at the the beautiful gate of the temple to beg every day. And so people know who he is and he is restored, able to walk and jump and praise God. So this is an amazing miracle that happened to someone that people knew. Where did it happen? Again, in the public arena outside the temple uh, by the gate called Beautiful. So lots of people coming and going. This happened kind of in a public place. 
How did Peter pray? You know, a lot of people want to learn how to pray and pray a good thing. And Peter's prayer here is quite the thing. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have, what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then he helps him up. That's quite the prayer. That's a very bold prayer. He knew it was going to happen. That's a very interesting prayer. We don't necessarily pray in that same way today, though we have a biblical precedent of praying along those lines, a very strong proclamation. So Peter prays, I give you the ability to walk, and he helps him up. What did Peter not give him? Peter did not give him silver or gold. Peter did not give him what he asked for. You know, hey, give me some money. I'm here begging every day. I need some, I need some money. Give me some money. And Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have, I'm going to give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you're going to get up and walk. And he helps him up. So he gives him, instead of alms to the poor, he gives this man a whole new life. He gives him the ability to not need to beg anymore. He gives him the capacity to be whole and productive and respected. This is what he gives him. This man could now work. He could take care of himself. He could be productive and respected in society. So the first point, the first thing we learned today that I believe that I want to, I want to make sure that you understand is the greatest miracle is giving someone a new lease on life. It's not just that, oh, neat, you know, his feet are made strong. His ankles now work. That's neat. The miracle was that this man was rescued from needing to be a beggar for his whole life. He was rescued from that and given a new opportunity to live a whole different life, to be a productive citizen, to take care of himself, to help other people. He was given a new lease on life. This is the greatest miracle. This is the story of the gospel that the old is gone, the new has come. You don't have to be stuck in the past, but you can step into a new life today in Christ. It's the greatest miracle, a new lease on life. This is a way better for this man than if Peter was to give him, you know, a year's worth of money. This is way better. He's new. The new life has come. And this is why I wanted to start with this miracle is because to me, this is the message of the gospel. It isn't, you know, some have said religion is the opiate of the masses, you know, things like that. It's just, just here to make us feel better while we're stuck in our yuck. No, Jesus came to set us free, to give us new life, that things could actually change, that we could be taken out of the old and brought into the new. Just like this lame beggar, this crippled beggar, goes from somebody who has to beg every day, who's dependent on other people, to someone who now can take care of himself, he can earn his own wages, and he can help others. His life is changed. True faith in Jesus means you don't need to be a beggar anymore. means you don't need to be stuck in the old life anymore. You don't need to be that person anymore because the miraculous hand of God will bring change in your life and you can step into something new. That's the greatest miracle is a new lease on life. That's point number one. Point number two, second point, a changed life is the greatest proof of the gospel message. So many people, you know, we're talking about wisdom and they want to argue the faith with people. 
tell you what, just demonstrate it. Just live the new life. And that is way more powerful than any argument. You know, I heard a preacher say it this way one time, you know, you want to argue if healing still happen and have a theological debate about that. He says, well, you got to me too late. I've already seen it. So whatever argument you want to give theologically that that stuff doesn't happen anymore, I've seen it. So I believe that it happens today. And it's the same thing with a new life. If we're going to tell this world and proclaim to this world that there is new life in Christ, there is forgiveness and redemption and new life. You can be born again. And we just talk about it, but nobody ever sees it. It doesn't do any good. So when these people saw this man healed, it had a huge impact. Let's read some more in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. And let's look at the response to this miracle. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, He said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So we see Peter gives a sermon after the miracle happens. This is just like Acts chapter 2, the previous chapter, where we see the great miracle at Pentecost, and then Peter preaches. So there's a miracle, gets everybody's attention, then Peter tells people what's going on. Same thing in chapter 3. There's a miracle, gets everybody's attention, then Peter tells people what's going on. You got a miracle. Then you have a sermon. I tell you, that'd be super handy. People would pay very close attention if we had the miracle first and then the sermon. Uh, And here's the sermon outline. Very simple sermon outline that Peter had here in Acts chapter 3. First point he had was you made a big mistake rejecting Jesus as the Christ. You messed up. You rejected Jesus. Point number two, though, is however, repentance brings forgiveness and times of refreshing. So even though you made a big mistake in rejecting Jesus 
That's okay. You acted in ignorance. God will forgive you. Just repent. You'll be forgiven. You'll be redeemed. You'll have times of refreshing. And then point number three is this happens because Jesus came not to condemn you, but to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. He came to turn you from living a certain way to living a new way. Just like the crippled beggar has a new lease on life. Everyone, Peter says, all of you here, Jesus came to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways, to turn you from living one way to living another, from being untrustworthy to being a trustworthy person, to be somebody who doesn't believe truth, to somebody who lives by the truth, came to turn you from your wicked ways and bring you a great blessing. So this is the sermon that Peter gives because the people are now seeing the power of the gospel through this man's changed life because he has been completely healed. It's an amazing thing. When people see the impact of faith, it gives credence to the gospel. Here, God was defending the name of Jesus as the Messiah by doing this great miracle for this physical healing of this man's legs. Peter ties it into people being blessed by being turned from their wicked ways, by being forgiven and redeemed and and having times of refreshing coming in. He ties it into people living a new life. So we see that a changed life is the greatest proof of the gospel message. God was using it here. You know, I'm sure you've seen that. You've seen somebody whose life changed and you're like, wow, you're doing so good. What's going on in your life? And then tell you, you know, the the Lord is helping me and my life is getting better. It's a great testimony to the power of God. But the opposite is also true. If we as Christians are just prideful, graceless hypocrites, then it's going to cause people to reject the gospel. They'll reject God. They'll walk away from the things of God because they'll just see this pride and this uh, absolute, you know, gracelessness, harshness towards other people and that hypocrisy, they'll run away. Something I've said, you know, several times in church here is that uh, people don't need to hear about Jesus. Controversial statement. People don't need to hear about Jesus in Cloquet. People don't need to hear about Jesus in Duluth. People don't need to hear about Jesus in Ball Club. They need to be shown what living for Jesus does. They need to be shown what a person whose heart is after God will do for them. They need to be shown what new life in Christ looks like, not just told. So here's the deal. A changed life is the greatest proof of the gospel message. So don't be a hypocrite, all right? You're a believer, don't be a hypocrite. You can be a flawed believer, but you're honest. The hypocrite part comes in when you're pretending that you don't have the flaws. You know, you want things from God that you're not willing to grant to other people, things like that. You can be a flawed follower of Christ. That's not a hypocrite. That's just being normal. Don't be a hypocrite. But also, hey, if if you're prone to being pushed away from God by seeing human hypocrisy, Here's the next thing. Don't let somebody else's hypocrisy, somebody else's foolishness, stop you from having your connection with God, your life with God, your growth in the Lord, your spiritual growth. Don't let somebody who's a hypocrite take that away from you. See past human hypocrisy to Jesus and grab hold of the truths of God. 
So point number one, the greatest miracle is a new lease on life. Point number two, a changed life is the greatest proof of the gospel message. And here's the third point. Point number three, to keep hold of your new life, you must reject your crippled beggar mentality. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this guy uh, who was begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. We don't know a whole lot about him. We see a little bit in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, which I just think is just super fun. They got in a big fight now because proclaiming Jesus meant believing in the resurrection of the dead. And there was a big religious debate back in those days of whether or not believers in God rose from the dead, that if there was an afterlife or not, you know, that was a big hot topic. Now it seems like pretty much people believe in an afterlife, but there were huge numbers of people who followed God who didn't believe that there was anything beyond this life. And so they got in a big fight because they're talking about the resurrection of the dead. And so the two big factions were starting to fight with each other and it's getting to be this big problem. The apostles are in trouble with this group and it just got to be a big mess. They're trying to figure out what to do with the apostles. And that's the context of this. And here we go. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter four. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. They're trying to blame uh, Peter and John. You know, you guys are teaching false doctrine because you're talking about the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. Like that's ridiculous. And, but here's the guy standing there with them. He was standing there with them. I bet he was pretty excited to stand there, take his stand for Jesus, who was unable to stand before. He had to be laid on the ground to beg. Now he's taking his stand for Jesus. And I can just see him standing there like, yep, guess what? You better believe what these guys have to say, because here I am. That must have been a lot of fun. But We don't know a whole lot. We don't know his name. We don't know what happened, you know, five years later. We don't know much about him, but here's something that I think is pretty obvious. Just like everybody else, after this was done, he had to go get a job and take care of himself, right? I mean, he couldn't go back to begging. Now he's whole. He's got to go get a job. I bet there were some challenges with that. He's over 40 years old. He's never worked a a day in his life. He's been crippled and he's not been able to work. And so now he has to get off of, you know, disability and he's got to go get himself a job. And I imagine that was a little bit of a battle. Probably not real easy. You know, you got to learn all those skills. You got to deal with all the other problems that come with life when you're giving this new opportunity. And so... He had to no longer be the crippled beggar. Now he had to be the productive citizen that gets up early in the morning and goes to work and works all day and gets a wage. He had to reject the crippled beggar mentality and become the productive citizen. And it's the same thing with us when we want to grab hold of new life in Christ. We have to reject the old mentality, the old identity, realize that isn't us anymore. And we must grab hold of the new identity in Christ. So here's my question to you. What is your crippled beggar identity that you need to give up? You know, some people, I'm just a drunk. I'm I'm not going to get anywhere because I'm I'm addicted to these different things. I can't get free. I'm stuck. I'm just a 
ditzy girl, you know, uh, nobody cares what I think. You know, I, I need to buy friends. I'm not good enough to be a real friend, but I got some money. So I need to buy friends. You know, I, I've done so many things. I can't be forgiven. I'm just going to be poor for my whole life. It's just who I am. I'm just a, a person in poverty. I'm just a victim. Bad things happen to me. It's all going to go wrong for me. I'm just some kind of reject. I got some flaws in who I am. I can't, I'm never going to amount to anything because I'm just a reject. I'm just stupid. Whatever it is that your identity lie is that is holding you back, you've got to reject that and believe the miracle that it has changed. And now you can go into the new life. Just like this crippled beggar had his feet and ankles, his legs were healed. And now he was no longer the crippled beggar. Now he was the able-bodied man who could work. You need to reject these old identity lies after you've received new life in Christ and grab hold of who you truly are. Super important. I had a few, a good number of identity lies that I needed to reject after I came to Christ. And a good number of them, there were two that were the most significant. I don't belong was the first identity lie. And I went to church one time and I thought, oh, these, I do not belong with these people. I am not one of these people. I don't know what in the world. I don't know. I don't know what to do because I'm not one of these people. I, I felt like I didn't belong in church with Christian people. I just wasn't one of them. I didn't understand how they thought. They talked weird. They dressed funny. I didn't know what was going on. I just didn't fit in. So I didn't believe I belonged. That was a lie. And I've overcome that. The other lie, the one I want to talk about briefly here, that I believe the identity lie that I needed to reject was that I'm just stupid and I'm not going to be able to understand this stuff. I'm not going to be able to articulate it. I'm not going to be able to, to know. I had a stupid <laughs> identity. I felt I was stupid. The reason for this was because when I was a kid, I couldn't read. I've told this story before in church. It's part of my story. You know, I grew up not being able to read. I grew up just not being able to do things that everybody else my age could do. In third grade, third grade, my teacher found out I couldn't spell my last name. I could spell Mike. I couldn't spell Michael. I could spell Mike. <laughs> and that was it. That was as far as I got by third grade. And she made me stay in from recess and write my name a hundred times so I could write my last name. You know, third grade, that's pretty late for learning how to spell your name. Uh, I wasn't mainstreamed in reading class until sixth grade. You know, I just had to get up and leave and go to the special room for reading. I mean, I, so it's not like there were no reasons for this identity that I had that I just was stupid. I couldn't do the stuff everybody else could do. I had that because of the experiences that I went through not being able to read. So I had this identity of feeling stupid. You know, it was embarrassing. It was difficult. It was just no fun. But I believe I got healed in 1988 with my miraculous salvation experience. Something changed in my ability to understand things and my ability to be able to read, quite honestly. You know, I was 19 when that happened, uh, went through college, went to graduate school. I got a 2050 on my GREs. You know, that's not too bad for somebody who can't read. So I believe there was a true healing there that I was able to, to overcome that through an actual 
brain healing of some sort. There's a lot of work too. You know, I believe there was a real healing there, but then I had to reject the identity because here's the deal. I hated speaking out because I was afraid I'd be wrong and being wrong was embarrassing. And, it, you know, cause when I was a kid, when they would ask the class, so what's the answer to the question? I didn't know the answer. And so they would, if they called on me, I just didn't, I froze because I didn't know. Everybody else knew. I didn't know. It felt like everybody else knew. And so I didn't want to ever say anything out loud because I felt stupid. And I got to tell you, reading in front of people was the, I mean, if there weren't people there, I just simply didn't because, you know, why would you read if nobody's there? So the only time I ever read was when I was forced to in front of other people. And that was horrible because I would get it wrong. And it was embarrassing and I felt stupid and I couldn't do it. I remember one time, this must have been fourth, fifth grade. I had this sentence, you know, you read a sentence and go around the room. And for whatever reason I was in there, they shouldn't have let me in there. I had the worst sentence ever. The first word was ridiculous. It was a T, an H, and an E, a three-letter word, T-H-E. I tried to sound it out, T-H-E-H. I'm like, T-H-E-H, that doesn't make any sense at all. The teacher told me what it was. And so I said it and I got the next two words, which felt pretty great. And then there that stupid thing was again, T-H-E. I'm like, oh no, there's to again. I forgot already what it was. I couldn't get it. Missed the twice in the same sentence. And you know, it was just hard. So I didn't believe that I could do things. I was afraid to talk in front of people. I didn't want to be wrong. I was afraid to read in front of people. It was scary and horrifying and traumatic. But hey, You've been watching Kids Church. You know that God's power is made perfect in weakness. What did God see fit to do with me? He saw fit to call me to be a preacher, to say things that people would disagree with, to read sections of Scripture out loud in front of people, and this would be my job. This would be how I make my living. Amazing. God's power is made perfect in weakness. But I have to reject that reading is scary. I have to reject that I'm going to give the wrong answer. I have to reject those lies to grab hold of the new life that God has given me. And there are lies you need to reject in order to grab hold of the new life that God has given you. So let's wrap this up. Let's go get your miracle. Let's, I believe in miracles. I've seen the mighty hand of God move in my life. I've seen the mighty hand of God move in other people's lives. Let's go get your miracle. What do you need from God? I want you to, in your mind, you can say it out loud. I don't care. But right now, what do you need from God? You want to name it. You want to be specific because just soft, mushy prayers don't get a whole lot done. You want to be specific. What do you need? Do you need a physical healing like this lame beggar, this crippled beggar from Acts chapter three? He needed a physical healing. Is that what you need? Right now, I'm believing God to get my blood pressure down. I've, I've started taking blood pressure medication. This is ridiculous. I shouldn't need blood pressure medication. So I'm believing God to get my blood pressure down. So there you go. That's the physical healing I'm looking for. It's going to involve good diet. It's going to involve stress management. It's going to involve some things like that, but it's also going to involve the hand of God. What do you need? You need deliverance, you know, freedom from, from darkness that's chasing you around. You need a financial miracle. 
you need a financial miracle, man, you got to start living different than you did before if you're going to keep hold of prosperity. You need relationships restored. You know, do you need to see the identity lie that you've not been able to, to put your finger on? What do you need? This man in Acts chapter 3, he had a physical cage he was stuck in. His legs didn't work, and so he had to beg. For most of you, your cage is not physical. You've got a different type of cage. So don't be afraid to ask Jesus to show you the way to break out and to be free. Then you can be the new you. Then you need to grab hold of the new life in Christ. I'm no longer drunk, distant dad. I am now sober, attentive father. I'm no longer ditzy girl that tries to let people use me so that I can get what I want. No, now you are a woman of God who is going to believe that you're worth everything. You're going to grab hold of that new life. No longer believing that you're just stuck in poverty and there's nothing you can do. No, you can, you can get your financial miracle and you can live that life of earning and spending less than you earn. You got to believe and live in the new identity. So that for most is the miracle that you need is to embrace the new identity in Christ. We're going to close with Acts 3.26 that we read already. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Let's seek this blessing. Let's grab hold of the miracle. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your miraculous hand of power. Thank you, Lord, that you have changed my life, brought me from one path to a whole different path. Thank you, Lord, for giving me the ability to read and to understand what your word has to some extent and be able to articulate it. Lord, through our weakness, your strength is shown. Father, I pray for each one right now who is coming before you in prayer. Lord, as they have the miracle they need, Lord, I pray that that they would set that need at your feet? Is it a physical healing that they need? Is it a financial miracle? Is it uh, a freedom, uh, a deliverance from darkness, from addiction, from bondage? What is it, Lord? As they set that at your feet, I pray, Lord, that you would meet them right there and that you would, you would meet their need. And Lord, for all of us, as we believe lies about who we are that can chain us to the past, Lord, set us free. Show us the, the lies we believed about ourselves, even the lies we believed about other people, and let us see the truth so that we can grab hold of new life because the greatest miracle is a new lease on life. We must reject the identity lie to grab hold of that. So Father, I pray your blessings upon each one. And I pray, Lord, that you would... Help us to live the new life so that we can be walking testimonies of the power you have to change lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.